All right. Well, can you believe it? We are at the end of the Old Testament in our journey through the story. Uh, we have, I had, this will be the 21st message, and we're going to be finishing up uh, by looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Malachi. And again, I, I encourage you, if you haven't, I hope you read through the, uh, the chapters for each day or the scripture reading with the assignments that have been given. Uh, it really helps in understanding what's going on here and to get more out of the story as we move along. But again, I'm going to invite you to turn to Ezra. Uh, chapter 7 is where we're going to begin. If you have your Bibles, and I'd like to pray for us. Father, as we come to your word again this morning, thank you for it. These stories are so rich and meaningful. They are powerful. Your word uh, changes our life when we hear it and we put it into practice. And we're going to look at a story today where God's people did that. And they rejoiced in what you were doing in their midst and they saw you at work. And Father, I pray that you would speak to us powerfully today too and that you would use your word in our life to make us the kind of people you want us to be. Amen. Well, one of the things that I'm sure you've noticed as we have gone through the story is that God's people have a tendency to wander. Now, that's, that's a classic understatement, if ever there was one. Uh, God's people have a tendency to wander. We've seen Israel move in and out of the promised land. We've seen times when they've obeyed and times when they have disobeyed and were disciplined for them. In fact, that was the whole reason for the exile when the Babylonians came and uh, conquered uh, Jerusalem and Judah and took them away into captivity. It was God's discipline upon them because of their sin. But now the exiles have returned to the land of Israel and they are beginning to rebuild first the temple and then the walls of the city and then we're going to see how it was even a need to rebuild the spiritual lives of the people that were there and we're going to look at that this morning. But we have seen that there's a reason that God calls us sheep. There's a reason God calls us sheep. Because sheep can be oblivious to the danger around them. They can be easily distracted. They can uh, fix themselves just on what's right in front of them. Or they can enjoy that grass that they're eating. And they can kind of nibble themselves right onto the edge of a cliff. They just are oblivious to danger. And they need a shepherd to lead them and guide them to keep them from wandering. We saw that two weeks ago when the first group of exiles returned from Babylon and came back to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was leading them to rebuild the temple. And so they built an altar, they laid the foundation for the temple, and then the work stopped. Opposition came up from the surrounding people, and the work stopped for 16 years. The people got involved in other things, their own personal work, their homes, their hobbies, their interests, and God's house remained in ruins. What did God do? God raised up two men who were prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, who would call God's people back to the work and back to their relationship with God. And they began construction on the temple once again, and it was completed in four years in 516 B.C., exactly 70 years after its destruction. 
God's people need help keeping the main thing the main thing. We are prone to wander too. And we see that in our own spiritual life. We need spiritual leaders who will encourage us along the way and keep us focused on the Lord and what God's doing in our life and what God has called us to. And we need one another in the body of Christ to be an encouragement to us as we walk with God. We need people who will pray for us, people who will support us and encourage us in our relationship as we go through trials. We need help keeping the main thing the main thing. And that's what we're going to look at today. Today we're going to look at three men who were faithful leaders in Israel as the Old Testament comes to a close. The first of those is Ezra. And Ezra was a teacher of the law. The people living in exile had returned to Jerusalem in three waves. And we're going to see that. The first wave was under Zerubbabel. That was in the year 538 B.C. And in 536, they started rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed. The second wave is going to come with Ezra in 458 B.C. So 80 years later, here's another wave of people that come back into the land. And the third group that returns is going to be under Nehemiah in 444 B.C., 14 years after this. And so here you have Ezra coming back. And Ezra was a priest. And he was concerned about the spiritual health of God's people. Ezra was also a teacher of God's word. And he was faithful in that regard. In fact, Ezra is one of those guys I look to as a, as a hero in the Old Testament. One of those guys that I respect. For the scripture said about Ezra in chapter 7, verse 10, that Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. He had devoted himself to the study of God's word and to its observance and to teaching it in Israel. I like how the New American Standard Bible puts it. It said, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach teach it or teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. And those three words, I mean, you can underline that in your Bible or you can underline it if you have your copy of this story here. It's on page 292. That Ezra studied and he practiced and he taught. That's the biblical order. Whether we are a pastor or a leader in the church or you're a Sunday school teacher or as a parent, That's what God calls us to do. We need to know God's word, and then we need to practice it or obey it, put it into practice in our life, and then teach it to our children or to those that we are working with. We teach by our life and by our words, and there needs to be a consistency between the two. It's not just, you know, well, uh, do as I say, not as I do, and go on out there, and good luck with that. No, we need to model what we are learning from God's Word as well. And we can't teach what we don't know, so we need to be a people that are studying the Word of God to understand it in order to be able to apply it to our own life. And when we look at this time period in which Ezra was called to, there were two big concerns among the exiles who had returned. One was a lack of knowledge of God's Word, And the second was their intermarriage to foreigners, to unbelievers. 
It wasn't a problem of interracial marriage. It was a problem of marrying unbelievers who would turn their heart away from God. And so Ezra comes back and he sees this need and he wants to do something about it. And we picked up the story in chapter 8. And uh, in, um, let's see, I want to make sure I get the right reference. Excuse me, I'm, I'm in the wrong book, and not in Ezra 8 at this point, but it's Nehemiah 8. All right. In Nehemiah 8, we pick up the story, it's page 300, and it tells us that Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand, and he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So Ezra comes back. The people are brought together in Jerusalem. And from daybreak or from morning till noon, he stands up and he reads to them from the book of the law. Now what's significant about this is this is after Nehemiah had returned, so it's later in this history. And... The people have come together. This need has become obvious. But it has been over 140 years since the word of God was taught in this way in Jerusalem. 586 B.C., the temple was destroyed. It's now sometime after 444 B.C. 140 years have passed, and the word of God has never been taught or celebrated like this in Jerusalem since that time. And what did the people do? Well, it said in uh, Nehemiah 8, verse 4, that Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. And beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, and you've got the names of all these others who were on his right and on his left, other priests. And Ezra opened the book. And all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and they responded, Amen! Amen! You can picture this worship scene, even as we this morning were singing our songs and we raise our hands and worship. They were praising God and shouting, Amen! And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then what's interesting is the Levites, and there's a whole list of names there in verse 7, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so the people could understand what was being read. So here's Ezra from the front. He's reading the word of the law. The Levites are in the crowd. It's kind of like they're doing small group Bible study. Do you understand that? Do you get what he's saying? Do you understand what God is calling us to do? And the people heard the word of God And it was made clear so that they could understand it. And the response of the people at that time was, first of all, they wept. They wept over their sins and their disobedience, where they had fallen away and not practiced the word of God. But Ezra and Nehemiah began to go through the crowd and instruct them and say to them that this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Instead, this is a day to rejoice. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, 
For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The people came together and they heard about the feasts, the festivals that they should have been practicing in honor to the Lord. And there was one coming up and that was the Feast of Tabernacles. And so they decided that they were going to obey the word of God. And they built booths in Jerusalem and they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles like it had never been celebrated from the time of Joshua to today. And their joy was very great. What a wonderful scene that must have been. And it is a picture of how our obedience leads to joy in our life. That when we put God's word into practice in our life and we begin to walk with him, there is a joy that fills our heart. There's a, a response or, uh, from his Holy Spirit who affirms what we are doing, that it is right and it is pleasing to God, and we sense that in our own life. I think it's interesting how the people affirm these things too. In the book of Nehemiah, as you go on, not only did they um, express their joy that day as they repented of their sin and came back to the Lord, but they put it in writing. In Nehemiah 9, verse 38, it said, In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. So they said, this is what we're going to do. And they, they made this contract with the Lord, and they said, you know what, we're going to sign it, and our priests are going to sign it, and the Levites are going to sign it, that this is what we will do. And what did they promise? In chapter 10, Starting in verse 30, it says, We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. They were not going to intermarry with unbelievers of the surrounding nations. They were going to honor the Sabbath. Verse 31, We will not buy on the Sabbath or we will not sell on the Sabbath, but we will honor the Lord. They said in verse 32, we will assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of the shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. They were going to bring their offerings. They were going to give their tithes to the Lord, the first fruits of their harvest. They were going to honor the Lord and assume personal responsibility to do so in every area of their life. It's quite an amazing commitment, isn't it? When they heard the word of God, it wasn't just uh, an immediate response that said, you know, we should do that. But it was a commitment that they made to follow what God had said. You know, I look at this and I think of how all of us need spiritual leaders who will teach us the truth of God's word and call us to put it into practice in our life. And we need the encouragement that comes when God's people respond as a whole. When we see that response in the hearts of the people, both that we are working with and doing life together with in the church, that community, that fellowship of believers is such a powerful encouragement to each of us. And I think about the need for those of us that are leaders in the church to speak the truth in love. For example, if I was a doctor and you came to me with a serious medical condition and I knew what was wrong but I didn't tell you what was wrong, I would not be a very good doctor. You know, if I thought, boy, this is going to be painful for you to correct, you know, and it's going to be really hard, 
So I don't think I'll tell you about this. I don't think that's the kind of doctor you'd want to go to. If you have a serious medical problem, you would want someone who knew what the problem was and also knew what you needed to do to deal with that to be healthy and well. And in the same way spiritually, if you come to me or you come to one of our pastors or leaders and you have a serious spiritual issue in your life and we don't tell you the truth about what God says or what he would ask you to do, then we're not being very good shepherds, are we? It is our responsibility as leaders in the church to teach people the word of God and to point you to Jesus and to deal with sin honestly and in a straightforward way and to call you to walk with God in obedience. That's our responsibility. And that is exactly what Ezra did. He read from the word. He made it clear what we should do. And the people heard and responded. And there was joy that filled their heart. Well, the second person whom God used at this time in history was Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was a builder. Nehemiah would become a governor of the people. But at the time when we first meet Nehemiah, he is working in the court of the king of Persia. He was a civil leader and he was a cupbearer to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes I. Now, do you know what a cupbearer is? I know some of you do and some may not, but a cupbearer had a very trusted position in the king's court. He was the one who would taste the king's food or drink from the king's cup to make sure nobody was trying to poison him. <laughs> How'd you like that job? You're the guy who, you know, samples things or makes sure it's prepared properly and, you know, you eat first and then the king looks at you and if you uh, don't show any ill effects from the food or drink, then he partakes of that as well. And that was Nehemiah's job. But obviously you wouldn't put somebody in that position if you did not have full trust in them, in their character and in their integrity. So here's Nehemiah. He is this godly man whom the Lord has put in this position in the court of the king of Persia. Now, another thing that is interesting to know is that Artaxerxes I, his stepmother was Esther, who we just read about and uh, Pastor Jim talked about last week. And Esther was likely still alive at this time and probably still had some influence in the court as well. And so Nehemiah, in chapter 1 of his book, hears from the exiles who have returned that the walls of Jerusalem are still broken down. And in Nehemiah 1, verse 4, it said, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him, and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. And I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you and we have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. And Nehemiah comes and he brings his request to the Lord. And he wants to go back and help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah's heart was troubled. And he prayed 
and then he acted on what God was putting on his heart. He is one day in the presence of the king, and in chapter 2, the king sees that he is sad, and he asks him, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah said, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And so here is Nehemiah. He's talking about what's happened in the city of Jerusalem and how it is still in ruins in terms of the walls of the city, and he wants to go and rebuild it. And the king asks him, what is it that you want to do? And when Nehemiah tells him, the king grants him this leave of absence to go and to rebuild the walls. And not only that, he gives him letters to the governors around there so that they would give him the supplies that he needs, whatever he will need to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah returns. The year is 444 B.C., 14 years after Ezra's return. And he comes back. And he meets with the people. He takes them out by night to see the walls of the city and the state in which they are in. And he calls the people to begin the work to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. You know, Nehemiah was one who saw a different need than Ezra. Ezra came back and he saw the spiritual needs of God's people because he was a priest and a teacher in Israel. Nehemiah was a civil leader. And he saw the needs of that city to be protected. In a sense, it was though Nehemiah would say, what good is it to have a temple or to build homes if there isn't a way that we can protect ourselves and defend ourselves? And so he called the people to begin this work. The opposition arose once again. There were threats on Nehemiah's life. There were threats against the people. They, they taunted them. They tried to discourage the work. And their enemies did not want to see the city of Jerusalem rebuilt. But Nehemiah, through his leadership, he assigned families to work in front of their homes in rebuilding the walls. Kind of good motivation there to make sure that it is done well when it's right in front of your house. And then he called them to arms to carry a sword with them by name and uh, they had a trowel in one hand and a sword on their side and they would go about their work rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and he kept a trumpeter with them and he said if you hear the sound of the trumpet then come to where we are because that's where the enemy's attacking and the work continued and the Bible tells us that the wall was completed in 52 days In Nehemiah 6, verses 15 and 16, it says this, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Even their enemies were amazed at what had happened. And they knew that the Lord was with them. Now my question is, would the work have been done without Nehemiah's leadership? I doubt it. God could have raised someone else up to give that leadership if Nehemiah had been there. But the work needed someone who saw the need, cast the vision, gave leadership to the 
to the uh, project and organize the people to do the work. And God had raised up Nehemiah for just a time like this. Now when I look at what happened in this particular story, I think this story illustrates how the body of Christ is to work. I mean, we all have different gifts in the body of Christ, and we need one another. And we need those who will be teachers. We need those who work on the building and grounds. We need those who are willing to do the work behind the scenes that help with the administration or organization, communication. We need those who have gifts of mercy and compassion who come alongside of people when they are hurting to be our Stephen ministers, if you will. We need those who have a heart for God's work, who will be leaders in our ABFs and small groups and have a passion to disciple and help people grow in their faith. We need one another. And when we look at the church and we look at needs of individuals, we all see different things. You know, I was thinking about that with the Osmondsons when I shared about this prayer request for Christians. You know, there are people who have come to me and people who have stepped up to help them in many different ways. Some just have a burden to pray for them. Some have said, you know, how can we organize people to help with meals or with work on their house as they've had to uh, do some work on the lower level to get things ready for not only Christian, but for a nurse who is living with them. Some people have said, you know, how can I help with their needs? Can I give? Is there a need financially? Or are there people who are motivated to organize what's going on? And we all see different needs. I come alongside and I want to pray and I want to encourage them and lift them up spiritually. And it is just wonderful to see the testimony that they have been sharing. But that's just one example of how it works. And there are many such needs like that. And you can think of how in Acts chapter 6, you remember the story where the church had a problem where there was a concern about feeding the widows and caring for the widows in their congregation. And some thought that one group was being neglected by the other group. And so what did the disciples do in that situation? They delegated the work to godly men who could take on this ministry. And they appointed deacons in the church like Stephen, men who were full of faith in the Holy Spirit and who stepped up to do the work. Why didn't they do it themselves? Because their primary calling was the ministry of the word and prayer. And in the body of Christ, God has given each of us gifts to carry out the needs that we see or to meet the needs that we see. We need one another and we need you to use your gifts to meet the needs you see in our church and in our community. And Nehemiah did that. He gave leadership and he organized the work to meet a need that was very evident. What are the needs that you see? What are the concerns that you have? And what is the burden that God has put on your heart? And how could you help meet that need? And thirdly, I look at Malachi the prophet. And if you have your Bibles again, you can turn to the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And to put this in context, in 433 B.C., Nehemiah returned to Persia in service to the king. So he goes back. He's taken this leave of absence, but now he goes back to the king Eleven years have passed, 
And during his absence, some things are going to happen. The people living in Jerusalem will fall into sin once again. And, you know, sadly, the things that they were doing were the very things that Ezra had taught them not to do. And so here this time has passed, and now they've stopped tithing once again. And they were bringing to God offerings, their animals that were blind or lame to give. They weren't giving God their best. They were giving him their leftovers. They ignored the Sabbath. They had gone back to buying and selling on the Sabbath. And they were intermarrying with unbelievers, with foreigners. And sadly, even the priests at this time had become so corrupt that they were letting God's people get away with it. And they were not teaching them what they should be doing instead. The very same issues that Ezra confronted just about 11 years before are now coming up once again. And to me, again, it just shows how how prone we are to wander and how God's people will drift over time if there is not that kind of leadership and calling to keep the main thing the main thing. So what did God do once again? He raised up a prophet named Malachi. And Malachi confronted their sin. If you have your copy of the story, it's on page 32 in your Bible. So I'm going to start with Malachi 1, verses 6 to 8. Malachi confronted their sin in terms of the offerings that they were bringing to the Lord. He said, A son honors his father and a servant his master. And the Lord said, If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how are we showing contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how are we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? It got so bad that God said, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun, and in every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. What the priests had done was they were taking and accepting these offerings that were defiled and bringing them before the Lord when instead they should have been lifting up the name of the Lord and calling God's people to give their very best to him. They defile their worship of God. And God said, I wish you would just close the doors rather than persist in this fraud that was going on. How bad were the priests and what they were doing? Well, if you go to chapter 2, verse 7, it says that the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. And from his mouth men should seek instruction because he is a messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way and by your teaching you have caused many to stumble. 
You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people. Because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. God would cause them to be despised in the eyes of the people, because they had despised the Lord. And then again in chapter 8, verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 8. God said, will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. They were not bringing to the Lord the first fruits of their harvest or their gifts and their offerings. And God said they were robbing him. And he gave them this challenge to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and see if he would not pour out a blessing until there was no more need among them as a people. Put God first in your life and see what I will do. That's what God is calling us to do too. Not to give him half-hearted offerings, not to give him whatever we think we can spare, but to put him first in our life, in our time, in our giving, and to give him the very best. And when we do that, it is amazing what God does and how he blesses and how he uses us as individuals and as a church. What is it that God is asking you to do? If you were to examine your life, if you were to look at your you know, pattern of giving, or you look at the time that you give to the Lord, or how you are using your gifts... Is it honoring to God and do you feel like you are giving to him the best that you have and not the least? The book of Malachi ends with a promise and also with a curse. In chapter 4 verses 5 and 6, Malachi says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. There is a promise of a forerunner who is going to come, who will herald the coming of God's Son, the Messiah. And there is this invitation, this call, that God is going to work through His Word to restore the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers. But what will you do? What will you do? Will the people hear and respond or will the people reject God's message and refuse to listen? And if they fail to listen, God would once again strike the land with a curse. The Old Testament ends here. 400 years of silence would follow before the New Testament. And the next person that we will hear speak will be John the Baptist, that forerunner of the Lord. So what do we learn from this chapter of the story? Well, we see very clearly how prone we are to wander, we ourselves. And we need shepherds who will lead us and who will teach us the word of God. We need help keeping the main thing the main thing, keeping Christ as the Lord of our life. And this passage is really an encouragement 
not to try to do the Christian life on your own. If you try to go on your own, Satan views you as a very easy target, kind of like a wolf would view a lamb that had wandered off on its own. We need to be connected to a body of believers where we are being encouraged in our relationship with him, and we need shepherds who will help us to grow in our walk with Christ. Now, in your bulletins today is a a card that we're going to have up on the screen, and it's really a summary of the story, both what we've looked at in the Old Testament and what we're going to cover in the New Testament. And I want to give you a simple explanation of it. I know it's a little bit harder to read, but you can probably uh, make it out either on the screen or look at the card in front of you. And I want to share this with you, and I'd like you to share it with one other person this week, if you would to take this and explain to someone else what we have been doing. The God's story, we've seen that his vision is to live in community with us. God wants to have fellowship with you and me. That was the original reason why he created Adam and Eve in the beginning. But that vision was lost in Genesis 3 when man disobeyed, fell into sin, chose to go his own way. And the whole story of the Old Testament is really about God's desire to bring us back into a relationship with him. He used Israel to teach them things about God's holiness and character. And he established this system of sacrifices and worship at the temple as a way to point forward to the sacrifice that his son would one day make. So from Genesis to Malachi, we see the story of Israel and their obedience and their disobedience, but how it all pointed forward to the day when Jesus would come. At the center of the story is the cross. John 3.16 is put there as a key verse that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets and all that was said, and he would give his life as the sacrifice for our sins. That's what we're going to see next as we move into the New Testament. On the other side of that uh, card, we live in the church age. And in Acts through Revelation, we are going to read about God's plan for the future. And we are looking forward to that day when Jesus will come again in his second coming, when he will establish his kingdom on earth, and which uh, will come that day when we will live in a new heaven, new earth, and God will make all things new. And that original vision will be restored. In the meantime, what is it that God has called us to do? Well, we are to be his witnesses in this world. We are to go and make disciples of all peoples, all nations. We are to live every day right where we are for the glory of God, putting him first in our life, and living as a witness for Christ. God wants you to be a part of his story, and he also wants to use us to invite others to join with him in his story. And come into that personal relationship with Christ by placing their faith in him. Now that's a real simple explanation of the story. That's not all that there is to it, obviously. But what I'd ask you to do is to use this card and share it with someone else. What you've been learning from the story and maybe as an opportunity for you to share the gospel. And to talk about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these passages of Scripture that we have looked at in the Old Testament that point so clearly to your Son, Jesus. And I pray, Father, that we would be faithful followers of you, 
that we would walk in obedience to your word and put Jesus first in our life. And I thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ here who love us and encourage us to do that. Lord, we need one another, but most of all, we need you. And would you continue to do that work of making us more and more like your son, Jesus? And we ask that in his name. Amen.